Two episodes ago, we discussed Newton's laws of motion. These three laws dealt with inertia, momentum, and opposing forces. We also mentioned Isaac Newton, as we have for three episodes now, and his connection to the development of classical mechanics. Isaac Newton and the laws of motions deal entirely within the realms of classical mechanics, which has been the subject of the past few chapters, and shall, for the most part, not really uh, remain the subject of forthcoming chapters. It actually will not. The next three episodes will be entirely... it'll be all art. Art history. That's what we're going to be doing. It's much different from physics and science, which we've been discussing for essentially 47 episodes. But we're going to do art history, because I thought it would be kind of an interesting thing, an interesting turnaround. It's more historical, but it's also interesting history, because we remember that art history is so intrinsically connected to history itself, that we're going to learn a lot about history when we learn about art history. We'll actually probably learn more about history than art itself. That's that's why I like art history, not art itself. Um, I do like art itself a lot, too, but that's... That discussion, that story, is for another episode. Classical mechanics includes prior studies of related properties of natura, the or natura, the Latin word for nature, including the subject of this episode, and that is kinematics. In this episode, kinematics, the study of motion without reference to the forces that may cause objects to move, will, as you could probably say it literarily or linguistically, very uh, linguistically formal, uh, will escape its now tenebrous shadow as it is revealed to you. Or we will be discussing kinematics <laughs> in a less formal version of that ridiculously unnecessary sentence. Kinematics, by definition, is the study of the movement of objects without respect to the forces that cause the movement. Es essentially, kinematics simply describes the motion of objects. It is the science of motion, so it basically does describe the motion of objects. As will be seen in the large mathematical section of this episode, kinematics is often referred to as the geometry of motion, and it is also accepted as a branch of mathematics. For example, when one searches the Oxford Dictionary for kinematics, the term is referred to as a topic of mathematics. Uh, but this is, of course, in its first definition, though, so not... There is another definition that is physics as well, so it's, but its primary definition is apparently a mathematical topic, and it is almost inherently, it is inherently mathematical, and you'll see because basically everything we're going to discuss deals with math. So if you don't know vectors, basic vector uh, things yet, basic things about vectors, you're going to have a lot of trouble, so I would just suggest either learning vectors or going out down into the bibliography as I do this episode, as I speak to you, and I'll learn about the stuff as we go through it. Because, again, vector stuff is not easy, unless you know it. <laughs> vector stuff is very easy if you know it. It's not easy if you don't. <laughs> That's all I can say. There's really nothing else to it. Like, it, it's easy if you know it. It's terribly difficult if you don't. Uh, but anyway, a typical kinematics problem first describes the geometry of the system and the known initial values of the system, so like the values of motion such as velocity, etc. Uh, if any unknown values of motion exist in the system, the values are subsequently determined with geometry, vector geometry, basically. Uh, kinematics has infinite applications in physics and engineering, including in astrophysics, mechanical engineering, robotics, biorobotics, among many other fields of classical mechanics and all of physics, to be honest. I, I don't know why you would even say just classical mechanics, because it is an integral part of 
all physics. To understand mathematical relations to kinematics, we will use a more intuitive object, that is a particle. We will not use it the entire episode, but for the most part we will be using it. The particle, this particle, no matter what particle it is, it does not matter, it just is a particle. You'll see it, if, if you take calculus, you will see a particle moving on this has a velocity of 3t squared plus 14t plus 26. You need to find the derivative of velocity with respect to time. 3t squared is 6t, 14t is 14, so it's 6t plus 14, which is the derivative of velocity with respect to time, and that's acceleration. That's the kind of question, like, you're not going to get that in Calc AB, on a, in an AP Calc AB test, but you will, you'll see something like that. Now, the particle thing, it doesn't matter, it's just an arbitrary particle, it, we're not looking, it's not a gluon, it's not a lepton, it's not any of the leptons, it, it's not a quark, it's not, up to, it's not an up quark, down quark, strange quark, charm quark, <laughs> top quark, dot, bottom quark, it's not any of them, it's just a quark or a particle, or anything. It's not even just a cork, it's a particle. It's an arbitrary particle. Uh, but anyway, we will use this to help ease the development, to ease us through the development of a basic mathematical understanding of the foundations of kinematics. So we'll first start with the kinematics of particle trajectory in non-rotating frames of reference, and we're gonna get everything out of it, velocity, acceleration, all that. The study of the trajectory of particles relates to the motion of particles in non-rotating frames of reference. Mathematically, position is defined as the coordinate vector from the origin of the coordinate frame relative to the particle. Yeah, that sounds uh, very difficult to understand, but I will give you a more intuitive understanding of it right now. Essentially, imagine the origin of the coordinate frame to be the origin of a Cartesian coordinate system. Uh, specifically a two-dimensional Cartesian system, which is two-dimensional. So the origin of that is just zero, zero. A particle's position is nine, seven, but position is a vector, uh, and thus what we was referred to in such indiscernible detail is now simply the position vector. I don't know why they said coordinate vector. It's, it's the same thing as position vector. Position, you determine position on the vector plane in the vector space by determining the position vector between two objects. So it's relative to what? So position is always relative to something. If you're talking about relative to the origin of the coordinate uh, plane or a bus that is 16 arbitrary units away uh, horizontally and 8 units down in length. You have to find the position vector. So in the case of a particle in a body, the position vector is determined by subtracting the position of the initial body from the position of the particle. In the case of our example, the position vector of our particle is, uh, I'm just saying position vector uh, equals 9, 7. So it's the same thing, it's just the vector. But of course, position vector, it's relative to something, it's not always relative to the origin. There may be another position vector with a value of 16 and 17, and we will get into that later in the episode. That is another, that is the same, it's the same thing, it's the same exact kind of position vector. Um, but yeah, so it, it, we really have to determine which one it's relative to what. So relative to, um, Relative to the origin, which is 0, 0, the vector, the position vector of, let's just say, 9, 7 is u. 
the position vector of u is 9, 7, but relative to, um, yeah, <laughs> let's just let's just say it that way. So relative to the origin, the position vector is 9, 7. So you have to go up, you have to go to the right 9, up 7 to get there. But relative to the position vector, the position vector relative to the origin, or the origin relative to the position, position vector, it is negative 9, negative 7. So it, it just depends. It depends on which one is which. So, yeah, that's does not sound simple right now but it, it'll be easier later even i kind of fretted when I, I kind of fret when i went through it but um it's not difficult it's not difficult it's just it, it's really when it comes down to it it's just wording it, it's just wording i can't really figure out the wording relative to what um relative to the origin relative to the origin the position vector is nine seven but relative to the position vector or relative to the vector itself which is nine seven um the origin is negative nine, negative seven. That's that's exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, in three-dimensional space, the position vector of particle P can be, be represented by the formula, which is a little arbitrary, a little... It's not as difficult as it seems here. Um, the position vector in this case, you could say the formula is P equals XYZ, is XYZ being coordinates, um, which is the same thing as X times the unit vector of X, plus y times the unit vector of, G, uh, of y, plus z times the unit vector of z, where i, j, and k, or you could just say x, i with a hash over it, y with a hash over it, really like a triangle, <laughs> plus z with, uh, plus k with a hash over it, all multiplied by the respective coordinates, um, where i, j, and k are all unit vectors whose formula is u, the unit vector of u equals uh, the vector itself, u, over the uh, magnitude of the vector itself. So we determine magnitude. So let's say we have a three, or let's say actually let's let's find a let's find a good one. So let's let's find a one that's actually decent. So let's say we have three four as our vector. I wanted to find one that actually the square root of it equals five or something equals a whole number. Uh, if we have 3 and 4 as a vector, we find the magnitude by adding the square of both of them and then dividing, or not dividing, square rooting that answer. So in this case, we have 3 squared plus 4 squared because you have a vector 3, 4, and you add those two together, which gets 25 because 9 plus 16 equals 25, and then the root of 25 is 5. So there you go. Um, through this, we can determine the value of the position of the particle with respect to the origin of a body. Now, it could be 0, 0, it could be 85, 76, it could be infinity, negative infinity, really not really, but <laughs> it still can be anything. Uh, we can determine the distance of a particle from a body by determining the magnitude of its vector. We know the magnitude of a vector, but let's understand that this is a scalar quantity. So we are finding magnitude. Magnitude is a scalar, inherently a scalar. A scalar itself is magnitude. It has magnitude but not direction. Um, in three-dimensional space, the formula for the magnitude of a vector v is uh, magnitude, magnitude v, which looks like the absolute value sign, or a double absolute value sign. I cannot get a double absolute value sign, so I just had absolute value. Uh, it equals the square root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared, where magnitude is always positive. Uh, of course, absolute value is, is the distance from zero, not the value of the number. Uh, remember that nothing, no negative root is possible. So 
it doesn't need to be an absolute value kind of thing anyway because uh, negative anything, you're not going to get an answer. You're going to get, um, for example, if you were to take the root of 16, of negative 16, you'd get 4i. That's essentially what you're getting. And um, no, that doesn't work with the... This is not the complex vector plane. This is the... Or vector space. This is the regular real number vector space, which there's a big difference. It's <laughs> quite a difference. Uh, suppose we have a particle with the vector value of... Uh, v equals v vector, vector v equals 4, 8, 1. So three-dimensional vector, three-dimensional space. If we want to find the distance or magnitude scalar of the vector, we must use the same formula. Using this formula, we find that the magnitude or distance of the particle in relation to the body is nine arbitrary units. Because 4 squared plus a squared plus 1 squared equals 140, or no, that's not 81, 81. 16 plus 64 plus 1 equals 81. I don't know why I said 144. That's another one, actually. I was trying to use my memory. Uh, that's that's another one. We'll have another 144. And of course, the root of 81 is 9, because 9 squared equals 81. Uh, the direction, the position vector of the particle is... Uh, the direction of the position vector of the particle is determined by direction cosines of its vector, which is something I didn't even know. Um, and these are just the cosines of the angles between the vector and uh, in the case of the three-dimensional space in which the particle exists, the three coordinate axes. However, the direction of uh, the direction of the position vector depends on the frames of reference, the frame of reference. For different frames of reference often lead to different trajectories, different values for position vectors, of course. The trajectory of the particle can be represented with a multivariable or vector function. This is a calc BC and a calc 3 topic, but it's still not arbitrary. It's not or it's not it's not very exceptionally difficult to understand. It's actually probably one of the easier things about calculus. Um, it's very easy. It's pretty simple. Uh, to determine the trajectory r of t, let's just say the trajectory is determined by the function r of t because this is trajectory. Trajectory is a function of time, uh, where r t is a vector function of time. We indicate that r of t equals, or r, yeah, r of t equals, or the r as a function of time is equal to x of t times the unit vector of x of t plus y of t times the unit vector of y of t uh, times the unit vector of y plus z of t times the unit vector of z. Uh, which, of course, where i, j, and k, they're the unit vectors of each, respected, uh, each respective uh, function, function for each. Um, this is really a parametric function. Vector value functions are parametric functions. Uh, they're, they're very interesting functions, let's just say it that way. Uh, but you have x of t, y of t, z of t. All of these are functions of time with respect to each coordinate. So you're seeing the change in the x direction over time, change in the, well, not change in the x direction, that's, the, that's x prime of t, but change in the magnitude of x over time plus the magnitude of y over time multiplied by the unit vectors of these. And the unit vector itself should be function should be a function as well because unit vector always changes when the coordinate changes, of course. So if you have an x with a magnitude of 6, if you have an x with a magnitude of 6, um, <coughs> 6, 0 
it's going to be one. Well, the unit vector is going to be one, but that's different. It's still different. It's just, it's six over six because it's one. So the unit vector is just one in that situation. But still, like, that's essentially what it is. Um, well, actually, the unit vector would be six, would be one uh, and zero because zero over six is zero. That's a unit vector. Let's be very specific here. Um, but th that's essentially what it is. So unit vector, all that, that's... That's how we determine the trajectory. And it's not exceptionally difficult, it's just probably a lot of brain work, a lot of math work, not brain work, just math work. Just a lot of writing things down. You just have to find the individual functions of the particle's position over time, and then from there, you can combine them to find the trajectory. So if you have negative, let's just say you get negative 16x or something, and you get plus 14x, it's just, it, it, not even close, but you would get um, changes in Y with respect to time, changes in X with respect to time, and changes of Z with respect to time. And that's how you determine the trajectory, essentially. The next thing we're going to talk about is velocity of speed, uh, uh, velocity and speed of particles in kinematics. Uh, it should be understood, velocity is the derivative of displacement and position also with respect to time. Uh, velocity is a vector quantity, meaning that it has both direction and magnitude. Uh, in a vector space, velocity is the rate of change of the position vector of a point with respect to time. To find the average velocity of the particle, we can divide away time. <laughs> For example, if a particle travels at 3 meters and 27 seconds, we divide away time uh, to find that the particle travels 1 ninth meters per second. And there we found the average velocity. So 3m equals 27s is the same thing as 3m divided by 27s equals 0, which is the same thing as 1m divided by 9s equals 0, or 1m divided by 9s is the velocity per second, is the meters per second, the velocity, the average rate of velocity in the basic unit, the base unit of the SI system in that situation. Uh, the, ba the base time unit, the temporal base unit. Uh, in three-dimensional space, we find the average velocity with formula, the derivative with respect to time, <laughs> the derivative of rate, whatever that is, with respect to time, dr, dt, it's the rate of velocity. It's the rate of velocity. Um, or the rate of change <laughs> um, equals the derivative of x with respect to time, or yeah, with respect to time, uh, times the unit vector of x plus the derivative of y with respect to time times the unit vector of j plus the derivative of z with respect to time uh, times uh, k, which is the derivative, or which is the unit vector of z, um, where i, j, and k are all, of course, unit vectors. Uh, the equation states that we are finding the rate of change, a vector quantity in this case, by taking the rate of change of the position of the particle on each coordinate axis multiplied by the unit vector of the vector of each coordinate, and then adding up the three vectors. That's essentially what is happening. Uh, we are finding velocity at an instantaneous point, which is derivatives, uh, pure derivatives. So these, these, uh, these unit vectors are not functions of time, they are just vectors. So again, with our 6, our x equals 6, uh, y equals 0, or yeah, for x, let's just say it that way. When x, when the vector is 6, 0, the unit vector is 1, 0. That's essentially what it is. 
We can find the speed of the particle by determining the magnitude, a scalar quantity of course, because speed is a scalar quantity, of the velocity of the particle. For example, if we have a velocity vector valued 6726, yes, it is a four-dimensional vector, we can determine, it, we can determine uh, the magnitude of the vector with the equation m equals the root of six squared plus seven squared plus two squared plus six squared, which is 125, 125. Uh, which equals the root of 36 plus 49 plus 4 plus 36. 36 plus 49 equals 85, plus 4 equals 89, plus 36 equals 125. And the root of 125 is the same thing as 5 root 5, or probably like 10, or probably like 12, maybe like 11.1 or something. Not completely sure. Uh, thus, the magnitude or speed of the four-dimensional velocity vector is 5 root 5 units per second. Acceleration is the derivative of velocity, of course, with respect to time. Acceleration in the vector space accounts for the changes in magnitude and or direction of velocity. In the vector space, we determine that the acceleration of a particle is the vector representing the rate of change in the velocity vector. In a three-dimensional vector space, the acceleration of a particle is determined by the formula, I'll just be ready, derivative of velocity with respect to time is the same thing equals uh, the second derivative of x with respect to second derivative of time. It's the second derivative of x with respect to time uh, times the unit vector of x uh, plus the second derivative of y with respect to time times the unit vector of y plus the second derivative of z with respect to time times the unit vector of z, where the derivative of velocity with respect to time or acceleration is equivalent to the second derivatives of the position or displacement of the position vector. So dr over dt, it's not the derivative of rate with respect to time, it's the derivative of position or displacement with respect to time. Um, but it is equivalent to the second derivatives of the position or displacement of the position vectors of the coordinates x, y, and z multiplied by the coordinates corresponding unit vectors and added together. As a result, acceleration is a vector quantity. We can determine the magnitude of the acceleration of the particle, which is a scalar quantity, of course, with the formula used earlier in the chapter, which is the unit vector, or not the unit vector, the magnitude of a equals the root of x squared plus y squared plus z squared. Note that there can be more or less uh, than three terms under the square root for the values refer to the number of dimensions in the vector. Now the next thing we're going to do is relative position, velocity, and acceleration. This is relative, meaning that it's going to be relative to something. Then we're going to be discovering the more unusual concepts, the more relativistic comp concepts, not, not the general special relativistic. I'm talking about relative to something. So relative to the, to the bus, you are traveling negative 18 meters per second. When the bus is traveling 18 meters per second, you are traveling 0 meters per second. That's essentially what I'm talking about when I mean relativity. We can find the relative position vector of a particle in relation to another object, such as another particle, by employing the same formula used to find the position vector relative to the origin. The position vector of a vector relative to the origin is just the vector itself, of course. Suppose we have two vectors, the vector of v equals 17, 4, and the vector of u equals 9, 5. To find the position vector relative to v, we must employ the formula uh, x2 minus x1, y2 minus y1. So the second one we're discussing is going to be v. Um, and applying our values to the formula, we get uh, 9 minus 17, well, x, because the first one, the first one is 
the first value vector is v and we're determining it with respect to u actually we're actually finding the position vector relative to v so the uh, v is going to be the first value the first vector and u is going to be the second uh, with this we get 9 minus 17 5 minus 4 9 minus 17 and 5 minus 4 which is the same thing as negative 8 1 um, as a result, the position vector of u relative to v is negative 8, 1. So if, you're, if you are at v and you're looking back, or you're looking to see u, you're going to have to look 8 units back and 1 unit down, essentially, is what is happening. We can find the relative velocity of a velocity vector relative to another velocity vector simply by subtracting one from the other. Vector subtraction follows the formula vector v minus vector of u equals xv minus xu, yv minus yvu. So the y, the x value of v minus the x value of u, and the y value of v minus the y value of u. Uh, so on, of course, because there could be many more dimensions. There could be a trillion dimensions, and we figure it out for every single one. Suppose we have two velocity vectors. The ve velocity vector of v equals 7, 9, 2, 17, and the velocity vector of u, or the vector of u, just the vector, not the velocity vector, the vector, uh, is 29, 107, 26. Uh, and we are asked to find the velocity of v relative to u, or v minus u. Um, using this formula, the velocity of v relative to u is determined to be uh, 7 minus 29 is negative 22, 9 minus 107 is negative 98, uh, and 217 minus 26 is 191. Uh, thus, the velocity vector v relative to u is negative 22, negative 98, 191. The relative acceleration of a particle relative to another particle or object requires more intense mathematical processing depending on the method that you use. Um, because in the method that we use, it's not that. <laughs> I tricked you guys with that. I'll, I'll be honest, I, it's not difficult. It's the exact same thing. Uh, it's the exact same thing as the velocity one, except the velocity subtraction, except you have to determine it with the second, not the first derivative of position or displacement with respect to time. As an example of this exact process has already been displayed, there is no need to repeat it. Uh, if, you're having, if you're having trouble, though, understanding the vector subtraction that both relative velocity and acceleration follow, then refer back to the section on relative velocity. Uh, there is another method with which one can solve for relative acceleration, but I have found it ridiculously and unnecessarily complicated, although I will say that there is likely a reason for it, probably when you get into more complex equations where you can't just literally subtract it. You kind of have to do more than that. You kind of have to be a little bit more... Um, a little bit more intricate with you. You have to be a little bit more specific, more uh, mathematical. <laughs> um, instead of subtraction, it has to be something more uh, rigorous. Um, but anyway, there's really, in this situation, I, I found it, for what we are trying to learn, I found it ridiculously unnecessarily, uh, ridiculously and unnecessarily complicated. Uh, for example, there are seven like several steps uh there are integrals dot products and parametric equations all in place of simple subtraction so we were not going to get into that uh, before the formula that determines trajectories of particles and polar 
uh, coordinate spaces is understood, it is important to understand the transformations of polar coordinates from Cartesian coordinates. The Cartesian form x is, the, is equivalent to the polar form r cosine theta, uh, where theta is a variable and r is the radius. The Cartesian form y is equivalent to the polar form r sine of theta. Consider the trajectory formula presented earlier in the chapter, r of t equals x of t times the unit vector of the function x of t plus y of t times the unit vector of the function y of t, where both of the coordinates are functions of time and where i and j are unit vectors, of course, the i and j are the unit vectors of uh, each respective variable. Uh, this is a respective variable function. This is the Cartesian form of the equation. In a two-dimensional polar plane, uh, the polar form of the equation is a little bit more complicated. Uh, it is t of t, I just said capital T because I wanted to use it, uh, t with uh, t of time equals r cosine theta of t times the unit vector of x, or, or in this situation it would be r cosine of theta of t, uh, plus r sine of theta of t times that same unit vector of y this time, where the x and y polar equivalents are composite functions with theta as a function of time and r cosine, r sine as functions of theta. r is the constant distance from the center of the object, so it's not going to be like, not necessarily going to be a, an exceptionally uh, crazy function. It's just two, compo two composite functions and unit vectors, not exceptionally difficult. Um, suppose we have a machine with seven pins, all of which move in different directions and have different direct, uh, trajectories relative to one another. The motion of this machine is a foundational concept in kinematics and can be percepted with little difficulty. The motion of each pin in the machine can be discerned by finding the relative motion of one pin relative to another pin, or by finding the relative motion of a pin relative to the base of the machine. If the parts are stiff, the deformation of the parts can be neglected and the values can be determined with what are known as rigid transformations, which are transformations that preserve the distances between each Euclidean point in an object on a coordinate system. They can also be recognized as transformations that preserve dimensions of an object. Uh, if a rigid body moves in a non-rotated path, that is with an angle of zero degrees, relative to another reference frame, then the determination of the bodies, of the motion of the body is known as a pure translation. If this is the case, then a body's B of T's trajectory, like a body B of T as in the function trajectory relative to another body D of T can be determined with the formula B of T equals D of T plus P, where P is the point at which the vector whose trajectory is being measured exists. Uh, kinematic constraints are defined as the constraints on the movement of the components of a system. There exist two forms of kinematic constraints, holonomic or holonomic constraints and non-holonomic constraints or restraints, constraints or constraints. An example of a holonomic uh, constraint is a person running on a sphere where the person cannot escape the sphere is constrained to the sphere. If the person were able to escape the sphere, then the constraint would be a non-holonomic or holonomic constraint. A formula expressing the person constrained to the sphere may be r squared minus a squared equals zero, where r is the person's distance from the center of the sphere, and a is the radius of the sphere. 
Uh, but a formula expressing the non-holonomic constraint, where the person falls off the sphere potentially, maybe uh, r squared minus a squared is greater than or equal to zero. Now, this would be if the, if the circle or the sphere, not the circle, the sphere is a rigid body, meaning that you can't just like, you can't just like bend it in so that the radius is uh, lower. Uh, where the person could be technically, in the case of a rigid body, at a greater distance from the center of the sphere than the radius A. Uh, kinematic coupling describes a constraining system known as a fixture or a support device that exactly constrains the motion of a part of the fixture, the part the fixture is performed on. This constraint allows one to know exactly the location of the constrained object at any time. Um, an object that can roll off a surface on a surface without slipping follows the constraint where the velocity of the center of its mass is equivalent to the angular velocity of the object with a vector from the point of contact with the surface and the center of masses cross product. The cross product is the output of a binary operation performed on two vectors. Uh, and this formula for cross product is A cross product of B equals the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B times the sine of theta times n, uh, where n is a unit vector perpendicular to the plane containing a and b, which causes the cross product of the two vectors to be perpendicular to the plane in which the two vectors exist. Uh, the unit vector acting upon the two vectors is illustrated by the right-hand rule illustrated on the Wikipedia page entitled cross product in the bibliography. A specific constraint occurs when two objects are bound together by a cord that is always in tension and has a constant length. The constraint is that the sum of the length of the cord is the total length of the system, and the derivative with respect to time of this object is zero. So, essentially, it is, un it is unmoving. It is essentially unmoving. Its position is not changing. Um, a kinematic pair is a pair of objects with a connection in a su state such that the connection imposes constraints on the movements of the two objects. There exist two types of kinematic pairs, lower pairs and higher pairs. Lower pairs are ideal joints or holonomic, holonomic constraints that maintain contact between points, lines, or planes moving in solid bodies to a corresponding point, line, or plane in fixed solid bodies. Higher pairs are similar to the lower pairs in that they are both joints, but the higher pair differs from the lower pair in that it requires a curve or surface in the moving body to maintain contact with a curve or surface in the unmoving body. Rigid bodies that are connected by kinematic pairs are known as kinematic chains. In other words, kinematic chains are assemblages of rigid bodies that are connected by joints to provide constrained motion in a mechanical system. Uh, robots are perfect examples of kinematic chains, for they are assemblages of ro uh, rigid bodies that are connected by joints. Uh, think of what connects a robot leg to a robot body and have constrained motion. Just like humans, robots generally cannot move their legs wherever they wish. So I couldn't just like take rip my leg off and put it on the put the very top of it on the top of my head uh, without having to perform an action that would. Uh, relinquish that constraint but I don't want to relinquish that constraint because that means I lost a leg and I'd rather not lose a leg when I'm 16 years old <laughs> um, but anyway kinematics holds 
numerous applications and fields that relate to motion. For example, kinematics is used in astronomy to describe the motion of celestial bodies. In robotics, kinematics is used to in locomotion of robots. And in biomechanics, kinematics is used to describe the locomotion of systems such as engines, robotic arms, skeletons, and of course other locomotives. As kinematics is a foundational concept in classical mechanics, its applications in physics are virtually unending. Motion is a fundamental component of classical mechanics, and more importantly, the real world. We can use kinematics to describe the motion of Usain Bolt's legs when he beats the world record for the fastest 100 meter race time. We can use it for LeBron James's motion as he jumped up to block Andre Iguodala in Game 7 of the 2016 NBA Finals. And we can see Giannis Antetokounmpo's motion, we can describe Giannis Antetokounmpo's motion as he recovered from a pick and roll to block DeAndre Ayton in Game 4 of the NBA Finals, which they would go on to win the NBA Finals. It just happened last night for me in Milwaukee. It just happened last night. We saw Giannis score 50 points and win the NBA Finals for the Bucs, basically. He basically carried them all the way to the Finals. They had 55 points without him. They would have been absolutely crushed without Giannis. Um, but evidently, kinematics can be seen everywhere, and it can be seen as an intrinsic study of the motion of our lives and of our world. But anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. As always, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. This was my first episode since coming back from a long, long trip that was perhaps the longest trip of my entire life. Not longest figuratively longest literally like it was actually a really long trip it was 11 days and it was the best trip of my entire life but um besides that uh i'm definitely rusty um but anyway thank you all for listening as always have a good morning afternoon evening and night i know i know i already said that but still why not um if you wish to support the podcast click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe of course i'm not asking you to do it um i'm not requesting it it's not a vehement request i'm just saying if you want to you can if you want to you should if you have the money to you should if you don't have the money to you should not um but anyway take care and stay curious